0: Chapter 10, Part 2 of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Mike, Section 18, Chapter 10, Part 2. How Lincoln appeared and acted in the Law Office has been graphically, and I must confess truthfully, told by a gentleman, now in New York, who was for several years a student in our office. I beg to quote a few lines from him. My brother met Mr. Lincoln, in Ottawa, Illinois, one day, and said to him, I have a brother whom I would very much like to have enter your office as a student. All right, was his reply. Send him down, and we will take a look at him. I was then studying law at Grand Rapids, Michigan, and on hearing from my brother, I immediately packed up and started for Springfield. I arrived there on Saturday night. On Sunday, Mr. Lincoln was pointed out to me. I well remember this first sight of him. He was striding along, holding little Tad, then about six years old, by the hand, who could with the greatest difficulty keep up with his father. In the morning, I applied at the office of Lincoln and Herndon for admission as a student. The office was on the second floor of a brick building on the public square, opposite the courthouse. You went up one flight of stairs, and then passed along a hallway to the rear office, which was a medium-sized room. There was one long table in the center of the room, and a shorter one running in the opposite direction, forming a T, and both were covered with green baize. There were two windows, which looked into the back yard. In one corner was an old-fashioned secretary with pigeonholes and a drawer, and here Mr. Lincoln and his partner kept their law papers. There was also a bookcase containing about two hundred volumes of law, as well as miscellaneous books." The morning I entered the office, Mr. Lincoln and his partner, Mr. Herndon, were both present. Mr. Lincoln addressed his partner thus, "'Billy, this is the young man of whom I spoke to you. Whatever arrangement you make with him will be satisfactory to me.' Then, turning to me, he said, "'I hope you will not become so enthusiastic in your studies of Blackstone and Kent, as did two young men whom we had here. Do you see that spot over there?' pointing to a large ink-stain on the wall. Well, one of these young men got so enthusiastic in his pursuit of legal lore that he fired an inkstand at the other one's head, and that is the mark he made. I immediately began to clean up about the office a little. Mr. Lincoln had been in Congress and had the usual amount of seeds to distribute to the farmers. These were sent out with free soil and Republican documents. In my efforts to clean up, I found that some of the seeds had sprouted in the dirt that had collected in the office. Judge Logan and Milton Hay occupied the front offices on the same floor with Lincoln and Herndon, and one day Mr. Hay came in and said with apparent astonishment, What's happened here? Oh, nothing, replied Lincoln, pointing to me. Only this young man has been cleaning up a little. One of Lincoln's striking characteristics was his simplicity— and nowhere was this trait more strikingly exhibited than in his willingness to receive instruction from anybody and everybody. One day he came into the office, and addressing his partner, said, Billy, what's the meaning of antithesis? Mr. Herndon gave him the definition of the word, and I said, Mr. Lincoln, if you will allow me, I will give you an example. All right, John, go ahead, said Mr. Lincoln, in his hearty manner. Philip says in his essay on Napoleon, A pretended patriot, he impoverished the country. A professed Catholic, he imprisoned the Pope, etc. Mr. Lincoln thanked me and seemed very much pleased. Returning from off the circuit once, he said to Mr. Herndon, Billy, I heard a good story while I was up in the country. Judge D. was complimenting the landlord on the excellence of his beef. I am surprised, he said, that you have such good beef. You must have to kill a whole critter when you want any. Yes, said the landlord, we never kill less than a whole critter. Lincoln's favorite position, when unraveling some knotty law point, was to stretch both of his legs at full length upon a chair in front of him. In this position, with books on the table nearby and in his lap, he worked up his case, No matter how deeply interested in his work if anyone came in he had something humorous and pleasant to say and usually wound up by telling a joke or an anecdote i have heard him relate the same story three times within as many hours to persons who came in at different periods and every time he laughed as heartily and enjoyed it as if it were a new story his humor was infectious I had to laugh because I thought it funny that Mr. Lincoln enjoyed a story so repeatedly told. There was no order in the office at all. The firm of Lincoln and Herndon kept no books. They divided their fees without taking any receipts or making any entries on books. One day, Mr. Lincoln received $5,000 as a fee in a railroad case. He came in and said, Well, Billy, addressing his partner, Mr. Herndon, here is our fee, sit down and let me divide. He counted out $2,500 to his partner and gave it to him with as much nonchalance as he would have given a few cents for a paper. Cupidity had no abiding place in his nature. I took a good deal of pains in getting up a speech which I wanted to deliver during a political campaign. I told Mr. Lincoln that I would like to read it to him He sat down in one chair, put his feet into another one, and said, John, you can fire away with that speech. I guess I can stand it. I unrolled the manuscript and proceeded with some trepidation. That's a good point, John, he would say, at certain places, and at others. That's good, very good indeed. Until I felt very much elated over my effort. I delivered the speech over fifty times during the campaign, Elmer E. Ellsworth, afterwards colonel of the famous Zouaves, who was killed in Alexandria early in the war, was nominally a student in Lincoln's office. His head was so full of military matters, however, that he thought little of law. Of Ellsworth, Lincoln said, that young man has a real genius for war. During the six years following his retirement from Congress, Lincoln, realizing in a marked degree his want of literary knowledge extended somewhat his research in that direction he was naturally indisposed to undertake anything that savored of exertion but his brief public career had exposed the limited area of his literary attainments along with his euclid therefore he carried a well-worn copy of shakespeare in which he read no little in his leisure moments in traveling on the circuit relates one of his associates at the bar, he was in the habit of rising earlier than his brothers of the bar. On such occasions he was wont to sit by the fire, having uncovered the coals, and muse, and ponder, and soliloquize, inspired, no doubt, by that strange psychological influence which is so poetically described by Poe in The Raven. On one of these occasions, at the town of Lincoln, Sitting in the position described, he quoted aloud and at length the poem called Immortality. When he had finished, he was questioned as to the authorship and where it could be found. He had forgotten the author, but said that to him it sounded as much like true poetry as anything he had ever heard. He was particularly pleased with the last two stanzas. Beyond a limited acquaintance with Shakespeare, Byron and Burns, Mr. Lincoln, comparatively speaking, had no knowledge of literature. He was familiar with the Bible, and now and then evinced a fancy for some poem or short sketch to which his attention was called by someone else, or which he happened to run across in his cursory reading of books or newspapers. He never in his life sat down and read a book through, and yet he could readily quote, any number of passages from the few volumes whose pages he had hastily scanned in addition to his well-known love for the poem immortality or why should the spirit of mortal be proud he always had a great fondness for oliver wendell holmes last leaf the fourth stanza of which beginning with the verse the mossy marbles rest i have often heard him repeat he once told me of a song a young lady had sung in his hearing at a time when he was laboring under some dejection of spirits. The line struck his fancy, and although he did not know the singer, having heard her from the sidewalk as he passed her house, he sent her a request to write the lines out for him. Within a day or two he came into the office, carrying in his hand a delicately perfumed envelope which bore the address, Mr. Lincoln Present, in an unmistakable female hand in it written on gilt-edged paper were the lines of the song the plaintive strain of the piece and its melancholy sentiment struck a responsive chord in a heart already filled with gloom and sorrow though ill adapted to dissipate one's depression something about it charmed lincoln and he read and reread it with increasing relish I had forgotten the circumstance until recently, when, in going over some old papers and letters turned over to me by Mr. Lincoln, I ran across the manuscript, and the incident was brought vividly to my mind. The envelope, still retaining a faint reminder of the perfumed scent given it thirty years before, bore the laconic endorsement, poem, I like this, in the handwriting of Mr. Lincoln, Unfortunately, no name accompanied the manuscript, and unless the lady on seeing this chooses to make herself known, we shall probably not learn who the singer was. The composition is headed, the enquiry. I leave it to my musical friends to render it into song. Following are the lines. Tell me, ye winged winds, that round my pathway roar, do ye not know some spot where mortals weep no more? some lone and pleasant vale some valley in the west where free from toil and pain the weary soul may rest the loud wind dwindled to a whisper low and sighed for pity as it answered no tell me thou mighty deep whose billows round me play knowest thou some favored spot some island far away where weary man may find the bliss for which he sighs where sorrow never lives and friendship never dies the loud waves rolling in perpetual flow stopped for a while and sighed to answer, No. And thou, serenest moon, that with such holy face dost look upon the earth asleep in night's embrace, tell me, in all thy round, hast thou not seen some spot where miserable man might find a happier lot? Behind a cloud the moon withdrew in woe, and a voice sweet but sad responded no. Tell me, my secret soul, oh, tell me, hope and faith, is there no resting place from sorrow, sin, and death? Is there no happy spot where mortals may be blessed, where grief may find a balm, and weariness a rest? Faith, hope, and love, best boon to mortals given, waved their right wings and whispered, yes, in heaven. Footnote Persons familiar with literature will recognize this as a poem written by Charles Mackey, an English writer who represented a London newspaper in the United States during the rebellion as its war correspondent. It was set to music as a chant, and as such was frequently rendered in public by the famous Hutchinson family of singers. I doubt if Mr. Lincoln ever knew who wrote it. End footnote judge s h treat recently deceased thus describes lincoln's first appearance in the supreme court of illinois a case being called for hearing mr lincoln stated that he appeared for the appellant and was ready to proceed with the argument he then said this is the first case i have ever had in this court and i have therefore examined it with great care as the court will perceive by looking at the abstract of the record the only question in the case is one of authority. I have not been able to find any authority to sustain my side of the case, but I have found several cases directly in point on the other side. I will now give these authorities to the court, and then submit the case. A lawyer in Beardstown relates this. Lincoln came into my office one day with a remark, I see you've been suing some of my clients, and I've come down to see about it he had reference to a suit I had brought to enforce the specific performance of a contract. I explained the case to him, and showed my proofs. He seemed surprised that I should deal so frankly with him, and said he would be as frank with me, that my client was justly entitled to a decree, and he should so represent it to the court, and that it was against his principles to contest a clear matter of right. So my client got a deed for a farm, which had another lawyer been in Mr. Lincoln's place, would have been consumed by the costs of litigation for years, with the result probably the same in the end. A young man once wrote to Lincoln, inquiring for the best mode of obtaining a thorough knowledge of the law. The mode is very simple, he responded, the laborious and tedious. It is only to get books and read and study them carefully. Begin with Blackstone's commentaries, and after reading carefully through, say, twice, take up Chitty's pleadings, Greenleaf's evidence, and story's equity, in succession. Work, 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 is the main thing. Lincoln never believed in suing for a fee. If a client would not pay on request, he never sought to enforce collection. I remember once a man, who had been indicted for forgery or fraud, employed us to defend him, The illness of the prosecuting attorney caused some delay in the case, and our client, becoming dissatisfied at our conduct of the case, hired someone else who superseded us most effectually. The defendant, declining to pay us the fee, demanded, on the ground that we had not represented him at the trial of the cause, I brought suit against him, in Lincoln's absence, and obtained judgment for our fee. After Lincoln's return from the circuit, the fellow hunted him up, and by means of a carefully constructed tale, prevailed on him to release the judgment without receiving a cent of pay. The man's unkind treatment of us deserved no such mark of generosity from Lincoln, and yet he could not resist the appeal of anyone in poverty and want. He could never turn from a woman in tears. Footnote I have heard Lincoln say he thanked God that he was not born a woman, because he could not refuse any request if it was not apparently dishonest. End it was no surprise to me, or any of his intimate friends, that so many designing women with a conventional widow's weeds and easy-flowing tears overcame him in Washington. It was difficult for him to detect an impostor, and hence it is not to be marveled at, that he cautioned his secretaries, keep them away, I cannot stand it. On many questions I used to grow somewhat enthusiastic, adopting, sometimes, a lofty metaphor by way of embellishment. Lincoln once warned me, Billy, don't shoot too high, aim lower, and the common people will understand you. They are the ones you want to reach, at least they are the ones you ought to reach. The educated and refined people will understand you anyway." If you aim too high, your ideas will go over the heads of the masses, and only hit those who need no hitting. While it is true that from his peculiar construction, Lincoln dwelt entirely in the head and in the land of thought, and while he was physically a lazy man, yet he was intellectually energetic, he was not only energetic, but industrious, not only industrious, but tireless, not only tireless, but indefatigable therefore if in a debate with him a man stood on a questionable foundation he might well watch whereon he stood lincoln could look a long distance ahead and calculate the triumph of right with him justice and truth were paramount if to him a thing seemed untrue he could not in his nature simulate truth his retention by a man to defend a lawsuit did not prevent him from throwing it up in its most critical stage if he believed he was espousing an unjust cause. This extreme conscientiousness and disregard of the alleged sacredness of the professional cloak robbed him of much so-called success at the bar. He once wrote to one of our clients, I do not think there is the least use of doing anything more with your lawsuit. I not only do not think you are sure to gain it, but I do think you are sure to lose it. Therefore, the sooner it ends, the better. Mr. Stewart and Edwards once brought a suit against a client of ours, which involved the title to considerable property. At that time we had only two or three terms of court, and the docket was somewhat crowded. The plaintiff's attorneys were pressing us for a trial, and we were equally as anxious to ward it off. What we wanted were time and a continuance to the next term we dared not make an affidavit for continuance founded on facts because no such pertinent and material facts as the law contemplated existed our case for the time seemed hopeless one morning however i accidentally overheard a remark from stewart indicating his fear lest a certain fact should happen to come into our possession i felt some relief and at once drew up a fictitious plea, averring, as best I could, the substance of the doubts I knew existed in Stuart's mind. The plea was as skillfully drawn as I knew how, and was framed as if we had the evidence to sustain it. The whole thing was a sham, but so constructed as to work the desired continuance, because I knew that Stuart and Edwards believed the facts were as I pleaded them. This was done in the absence and without the knowledge of Lincoln." The plea could not be demurred to, and the opposing counsel dared not take the issue on it. It perplexed them sorely. At length, before further steps were taken, Lincoln came into court. He looked carefully over all the papers in the case, as was his custom, and seeing my ingenious subterfuge, asked, Is this seventh plea a good one? Proud of the exhibition of my skill, I answered that it was. But he inquired incredulously, Is it founded on fact? I was obliged to respond in the negative at the same time, following up my answer with an explanation of what I had overheard Stuart intimate, and of how these alleged facts could be called facts if a certain construction were put upon them. I insisted that our position was justifiable, and that our client must have time or be ruined. I could see at once it failed to strike Lincoln as just right. He scratched his head thoughtfully and asked, "'Hadn't we better withdraw that plea? "'You know it's a sham, and a sham is very often but another name for a lie. "'Don't let it go on record. "'The cursed thing may come staring us in the face long after this suit has been forgotten.' The plea was withdrawn, by some agency, not our own. The case was continued, and our client's interests were saved. I only relate this incident to illustrate Lincoln's far-seeing capacity— it serves to show how over-cautious he seemed to be with regard to how his record might look in the future. I venture the assertion that he was the only member of the bar in Springfield who would have taken such a conscientious view of the matter. One phase of Lincoln's character, almost lost sight of in the commonly accepted belief in his humility and kindly feeling under all circumstances, was his righteous indignation when aroused, in such cases he was the most fearless man I ever knew. I remember a murder case, in which we appeared for the defense, and during the trial of which the judge, a man of ability far inferior to Lincoln, kept ruling against us. Finally, a very material question, in fact one around which the entire case seemed to revolve, came up, and again the court ruled, adversely. The prosecution was jubilant and Lincoln, seeing defeat certain unless he recovered his ground, grew very despondent. The notion crept into his head that the court's rulings, which were absurd and almost spiteful, were aimed at him, and this angered him beyond reason. He told me of his feelings at dinner, and said, I have determined to crowd the court to the wall and regain my position before night. From that time forward it was interesting to watch him, At the reassembling of the court, he arose to read a few authorities in support of his position. In his comments, he kept within the bounds of propriety, just far enough to avoid a reprimand for contempt of court. He characterized the continued rulings against him as not only unjust but foolish, and figuratively speaking, he peeled the court from head to toe. I shall never forget the scene. Lincoln had the crowd, a portion of the bar, And the jury with him he knew that fact and it together with a belief that injustice had been done him nerved him to a feeling of desperation he was wrought up to the point of madness when a man of large heart and head is wrought up and mad as the old adage runs he's mad all over lincoln had studied up the points involved but knowing full well the caliber of the judge relied mostly on the moral effect of his personal bearing and influence. He was alternately furious and eloquent, pursuing the court with broad facts and pointed inquiries, in marked and rapid succession. I remember he made use of this homely incident in illustration of some point. In early days a party of men went out hunting for a wild boar, but the game came upon them unawares, and scampering away, they all climbed the trees to save one who seizing the animal by the ears undertook to hold him but despairing of success cried out to his companions in the trees for god's sake boys come down and help me let go the prosecution endeavored to break him down or even head him off but all to no purpose his masterly arraignment of law and facts had so effectually badgered the judge that strange as it may seem He pretended to see the error in his former position, and finally reversed his decision in Lincoln's favor. The latter saw his triumph, and surveyed a situation of which he was the master. His client was acquired, and he had swept the field. In the case of Parker v. Hoyt, tried in the United States court in Chicago, Lincoln was one of the counsel for the defendant. The suit was on the merits of an infringement of a patent water-wheel. The trial lasted several days, and Lincoln manifested great interest in the case. In his early days he had run, or aided in running, a sawmill, and explained in his argument the action of the water on the wheel in a manner so clear and intelligible that the jury were enabled to comprehend the points and line of defense without the least difficulty it was evident he had carried the jury with him in a most masterly argument the force of which could not be broken by the reply of the opposing counsel after the jury retired he became very anxious and uneasy the jury were in another building the windows of which opened on the street and had been out for some two hours in passing along the street one of the jurors on whom we very much relied relates lincoln's associate in the case He, being a very intelligent man, and firm in his convictions, held up to him one finger. Mr. Lincoln became very much excited, fearing it indicated that eleven of the jury were against him. He knew if this man was for him, he would never yield his opinion. He added, if he was like a juryman he had in Tazewell County, the defendant was safe. He was there employed, he said, to prosecute a suit for divorce. His client was a pretty refined and interesting little woman and in court the defendant her husband was a gross morose querulous fault-finding and uncomfortable man and entirely unfitted for the husband of such a woman but although he was able to prove the use of very offensive and vulgar epithets applied by the husband to his wife and all sorts of annoyances yet there were no such acts of personal violence as were required by the statute to justify a divorce. Lincoln did the best he could, and appealed to the jury to have compassion on the woman, and not to bind her to such a man and such a life as awaited her if required to live longer with him. The jury took about the same view of it in their deliberations. They desired to find for his fair client but could discover no evidence which would really justify a verdict for her. At last, they drew up a verdict for the defendant, and all signed but one fellow, who on being approached with the verdict said coolly, Gentlemen, I am going to lie down to sleep, and when you get ready to give a verdict for that little woman, then wake me, and not until then. For before I will give a verdict against her, I will lie here till I rot, and the prismires carry me through the keyhole." Now, observed Lincoln, if that juryman will stick like the man in Tazewell County, we are safe. Strange to relate, the jury did come in, and with a verdict for the defendant. Lincoln always regarded this as one of the gratifying triumphs of his professional life. End of Section 18